You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I'd like to read the first poem of this collection, which is one of Borges' earliest poems, one of the new poems that we're bringing out in uh, Poems of the Night. It's called The Forging, from 1922, anthologized here for the first time in an English translation. And it's a poem that he afterwards reworked, which, of course, is is very typical of Borges, always reshaping his poems, always... In some ways, he's very Poundian in his uh, and, and Joycean in his idea of work in progress. Uh, that that you can always uh, rewrite it better, even though we know of him as a very rigorous, uh, you know, uh, forger of uh, of texts. Anyway, for anyone who knows that Borges was to lose his sight almost four decades later after this poem. Uh, the time of this poem, as a result of uh, a gradual de- degeneration of his of his eyesight, there's a prescient air when the forging, which is an ars poetica, like so many of his poems, opens with the image of a blind man who gropes with his hands for poetic lines that are to come. And so here I'll read it, the forging. Like the blind man whose hands are precursors that push aside walls and glimpse heavens, slowly flustered, I feel in the crack of the night the verses that are to come. I must burn the abominable darkness in their limpid bonfire. The purple of words on the flagellated shoulder of time. I must enclose the tears of evening in the heart diamond of the poem. No matter if the soul walks naked and lonely as the wind, if the universe of a glorious kiss still embraces my life, the night is good fertile ground for a sower of verses. Suzanne Jill Levine is the translator of Spanish-American writers, including Manuel Puig, Guillermo Cabrera Infante, Jorge Luis Borges, and Julio Cortazar. She's the author of The Subversive Scribe, Translating Latin American Fiction, and Manuel Puig and the Spider Woman, His Life and Fictions. She's a professor of Latin American literature and a the winner of the Penn USA Awards, National Endowment for the Arts, and the Humanities Grants, and a Guggenheim Foundation Fellowship. Thank you for joining me, Jill. Well, nice to be here, Rick. Jill, you know, one of the things that first struck me when I looked at this collection and and started uh, thinking again about uh, Borges is that his lifespan really was the 20th century. He's the quintessential 20th century writer. Absolutely, absolutely, and that's that's why I, uh, this is such an important uh, series of of new editions because I think it really will bring out uh, aspects of him that were so defining of the 20th century, first of all, and aspects of him that most readers don't know about. Uh, he he really was such a I mean uh, uh, such a, an incredibly uh, versatile writer and uh, and. Uh, but certainly, as you say, very emblematic of the 20th century. I mean, in a sense, Borges invented, uh, uh, I would say, uh, cyberspace before it happened. Uh, uh, he, uh, you know, he, he invented the idea of uh, imaginary worlds real as the real one. And I think, you know, we can cl- clearly say that this is what the 20th century has produced. Uh, some imaginary worlds, many of them which are nightmarish, as in the cases of of his stories, like Tlern Upar Obers Tertius. Uh, so he actually 
a bit, he comes off a bit from Kafka in that way, one of his beloved writers, uh, uh, in, in this idea of, of a world of, of an infinite uh, nightmare. <laughs> and, and I think there definitely is an element that uh, with all our magnificent accomplishments and technologies, uh, humanity uh, has nonetheless uh, taken things uh, too far. One of the things that that uh, struck me was um, that we've uh, seen, you know, various editions of, of, of Boris, and, and we primarily think of him as a fiction writer for his most famous fictions. But he, that's not how he thought of himself, is it? It isn't. He actually started out as a young poet, uh, and along with a, a group of other po young poets, uh, both in Spain and Argentina even invented a poetic movement called ultraismo, ultraism, in which they were basically trying to recreate uh, the Spanish language and certainly trying to reinvent the metaphor. Uh, uh, like many, uh, like uh, they were very similar to the, the kind of fanaticism and, uh, and uh, daring uh, experimentation of, of other movements at the time, like futurism and Dadaism. I mean, they were uh, amongst the isms, as it were. So his, but, but he truly always thought of himself, first and foremost, as a poet. Indeed, his greatest um, uh, desire was to be Walt Whitman, one of his beloved poets. <laughs> and, and a man he actually translated. Absolutely. Leaves of Grass. And there are so many homages to, to the great Walt in, in so many of his poems. Now, let's talk about these new editions. Uh, where did they come from? How did they start? And, and you, you're kind of at the helm of all this. So tell us what it feels like to uh, steer the uh, ship that encompasses most of 20th century literature. <laughs> well, it definitely was very uh, challenging. And uh, uh, certainly, I, uh, I, uh, uh, I felt extraordinarily responsible. Uh, uh, being given this task, but also it was it was a rather joyous opportunity uh, because as I've been following Borges since I'm you know 20 years old and uh, a number of decades has happened since then, and uh, I have known Borges, known Bjorn Casares, who's uh, his dearest friend, who I wrote books about and translated. Uh, I was very close to Bor one of Borges's most important literary critics, Emilio Rodriguez Monegal, a great inspiration to so many of us. And so uh, uh, for me, this was like the culmination in some ways of my own life's work as not only as a Latin Americanist, but as a translator and as just a lover of literature and of the greatest literature, which I think that when you come down to it, Borges is not only the greatest Latin American writer, but as you said, arguably one of the greatest and probably most significant writers of the 20th century in terms of his conceptual inventions as well as the brilliance of his, of his actual writing. Um, so... Um, but yes, his, he really was at first a poet. He was also basically an intellectual, an essayist, and uh, he wrote reviews. He wrote, you know, and later in his life, of course, prologues. He even invented a form of biography called the, um, called the uh, sort of uh, capsule biography or biografia sintetica. And, and, one of my, and so this project that, that basically Penguin uh, assigned to me is as they had already taken the huge fiction volume which they had done and had uh, done spin-offs of the fictions, i.e. bringing out you know, um, books, little short Penguin classics, paperbacks from the books, so that if, if readers didn't want to get the whole book, they could get you know, these separate little volumes. So they wanted to do the same thing with the selected poems and with that other wonderful volume which I work with, 
the, the selected non-fictions, which had all of whatever work was prose, but not fiction, which, uh, of which there are many varieties. So basically, uh, that was my task. And um, I had to, of course, also find the right editors to help me with this task. I mean, I was the overall editor. I was going to editor, edit one of the volumes. And uh, so I had the, um, the good sense, which I usually have. I have, I have to say that about myself, to choose the right people. Uh, I chose um, for uh, the sonnets uh, Stephen Kessler, who uh, had already proven his worth uh, and his work on the selected poems. Both Alistair uh, Reed and Alexander Coleman thought very highly of his work, uh, of his sensitivity to Borges' uh, poetry as a, as a translator. And also, uh, one of the problems of working with poet translators is that they're often, you know, they're extremely egocentric. And Stephen struck me as not so bad on that, uh, <laughs> on that, <laughs> on that scale. He seemed to me someone who would uh, edit the volume, uh, certainly translating as many of the poems as uh, as he could because he was enthusiastic about it. But also, certainly choosing. Uh, translations of other translators and poets who he admired without any problem, i.e., uh, you know, looking for the best text, the best translations, and that would be his, his purpose. So that was a good choice. Then, um, and, and so the sonnets kind of were a spin-off of the selected uh, poems, and, and uh, it was a wonderful idea because who knew that Borges had written so many sonnets? I mean, such a modern writer with such a traditional form. That in itself is Borgesian. It's almost an oxymoron, you know, a paradox. <laughs> well, well, one of the things about the sonnets is they're, they're so lovely, yet they really have the feel of Borges. And Absolutely. That, you can, that he can break through that traditional classic form and still um, emote his own, very own unique individual personality that's so peculiar and so 20th century is, I think, really remarkable. Very well put. He surely does bring the sonnet into the 20th century very beautifully and very personally. Mm -hmm. Yes. And then Poems of the Night was a... So therefore, we had this, this one volume that was, uh, as you can see, form-driven, as it were, a mm -hmm. particular form that he explored. And then Poems of the Night... Uh, we were seeking something different, and uh, Efrain Cristal, brilliant young uh, scholar of Latin American literature and critic uh, who teaches at UCLA, was again the right person. Uh, uh, you know, he, he's a very erudite, a, a great reader, aside from a great reader of Borges. He's written a book about Borges and translation, a very brilliant study. And so Poems of the Night... Um, really uh, was driven by a kind of, uh, you know, the sense of what was at the core of Borges's, um, you know, let's say the intimate Borges, the Borges that uh, really comes out in many of his poems. And this Borges is that Borges, of course, who was certainly obsessed, as, as anyone would be, with his blindness but also with all of these various themes of nighttime, of the, of the world of dreams, uh, the visionary aspect of nighttime, and also as, as, a, as a lover of his city, Buenos Aires, uh, he loved twilight. He loved that moment when day becomes night, and he has many meditations on this moment. Indeed, one of his most important meditations on this, which is called Sentirse en la Muerte, Feeling in Death, is where he has an epiphany of, of uh, eternity as a moment. 
And so, so can you read that poem? It's a beautiful. Well, actually, it's it's a text that mm -hmm. is in. Um, I don't think I have it with me, but it's in it's in in, in one of the essays that will appear in on mysticism. Mm -hmm. It also appears as a text as itself, but I'm uh, in, yeah, it's going to be on the unmysticism, it's in the unmysticism uh, volume that's coming out in June. But but it is a beautiful text, and it's, it was published in an essay of his called the, the New Refutation of Time, or A New Refutation of Time, which of course is such a joke. I mean, here is, you know, I mean, time, I mean, <laughs> if, if it's a new refutation, that means that you, you're not denying time. <laughs> that's so Borgesian, you know, he's always coming up with these paradoxically wonderful paradoxes. So, but in any case, um, Poems of the Night um, is very uh, dream-driven, uh, and uh, and I haven't also mentioned, but but there are you know we have uh, translations in both these books by such accomplished and award-winning uh, translators such as Mark Strand and Christopher Mora, uh, Alistair Reed, W. S. Merwin, famous uh, the wonderful Robert Fitzgerald, Charles Tomlinson. Uh, Edie Grossman, John Updike, uh, such a, a fabulous crowd in both these books, you know. So, uh, but I, I, what I could read is something which gives us um, perhaps a, a nightmare version of Eternity, which is a, a, a poem that I, a prose poem that I translated, and which actually was published in the New Yorker this last summer as a sort of a preview of the book. Would you like me to do that? Yeah, that'd be great. It's called A Dream, and is thus. In a deserted place in Iran, there is a not very tall stone tower that has neither door nor window. In the only room with a dirt floor and shaped like a circle, there is a wooden table and a bench. In that circular cell, a man who looks like me is writing in letters I cannot understand, a long poem about a man who in another circular cell is writing a poem about a man who in another circular cell. The process never ends, and no one will be able to read what the prisoners write. This this really does capture, I think, the essence of Borges. He he had a horror of mirrors and infinity. Yes, and, and I I understand that that was he had nightmares of this when he was young. He did mirrors, and uh, yeah, there is certain thing the the the, the labyrinth. Uh, was certainly a nightmarish mm -hmm. image to him. And the mirror, because when, when he was a little boy, he'd wake up in the middle of the night and, and suddenly see himself in the mirror. He said, who was that monster over there? Who was this other creature? You know, mm. she, he would see, he would be uh, surprised by this, this vision. And you, and you wonder, if he, was he dreaming that he saw himself in the mirror or was he actually seeing himself in the mirror? But whatever, it was like a ghostly presence. And so that, and then another uh, actually uh, form that, that bothers him is masks because when somebody takes off a mask, he says, "Well, is the now is that the real face, or is there yet another mask beneath that?" So he he does have <laughs> he had a lot of nightmarish images, which which really were very vivid and which actually come out of very ordinary experiences. For example, people would wear masks during carnival. Uh, mirrors are in houses. Uh, obviously, the labyrinth is is an experience that many children experience, even in a house because they're little and the house is big. Uh, one of the things I read that I thought was really striking was his description of the labyrinth that in a steel engraving he saw in a French book 
where he imagined the the monstrous Minotaur at That's the center. Right. That was very he he had a way of of writing very creepy and disturbing images. Well, he was very obsessed with the figure of the Minotaur, who actually is 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 one of those myths like Oedipus, which have a, has a lot of which has had a lot of relevance through the ages, mm -hmm. you know. And I think the Minotaur has come to mean something different now. I mean, Cortázar, who was another Argentine writer, also wrote a, a play about the Minotaur called The Kings. And basically the Minotaur, which was of course initially this monster who was uh, in a sense uh, uh, holding back civilization, mm -hmm. now becomes this image of this, um, of this alienated self, right? This, this, it's, it's the alienated self. It's sort of like the monster within us what that we can't control and that is just alienated and, and, and caught in, in this solitary labyrinth of of, of the mental creation, right? And so that's that's what I think his Minotaur is very much a sense of his, his own self trapped in his own in his own limited being. Now you you met Borges in, in the seventies. Tell us about that. Oh well, Borges was a charming old man. He was somewhat of a monologist at that point, <laughs> but a very delightful <laughs> monologist. <laughs> and. Um, and uh, I met him actually because I because I, I had the, the good the good fortune to be very close friends with Amir Rodriguez Monigal, who was his critic and who was a professor at Yale. And so the first time I met him, uh, they they invited Borges to Yale, and it was a hysterical event because, you know, every time Borges came to speak to a university, you know, uh, it's in, from the late '60s on, he was so well known that mobs of people would show up. So the room that he was going to speak in was much too small for Borges because the, the crowds that came were amazing. So we all had to get up, lead Borges, and go across campus to yet another building that had a bigger room. And so as I walked, walked along with Borges, I said, gee, well, Borges, this is almost a case of the blind leading the blind. He says, yes, you might say that. <laughs> <laughs> and then we started to have a discussion about peripathetics. <laughs> um, but I did actually consult him at that time about a project that I was working on, on Garcia Marquez. Uh, but I didn't mention Garcia Marquez to him. I was tasteful enough not to do that. I was talking about the relationship between his book, uh, one, his, one of his earliest book of fictions that was really sort of a kind of a, a, a disguised fiction called The Universal History of Infamy. Oh, I love that book. So it's I, so I know, wonderful. I know. It's so great. It was the book I loved the most <laughs> in some ways first. And, and so I was, I was looking at, at what are the literary, ref, the literary models of it that he was definitely referencing in a very specific way. And uh, I had discovered the, the decadent French writer Marcel Schwab who wrote uh, Vies Imaginaires, Imaginary Lives. And I said, so I asked him about the relationship between one of the stories and that and his. And he said, Yes, precisely. It was that story that had an impact, and you know, so he he confirmed. You know, he was very he very kindly confirmed that I was on the right track. So so, but it was very. I'll, I'll tell you, it was very difficult uh, to uh, talk to Borges because he was blind, and therefore the only way he can connect with you is through words, and because of the great respect that one had of him and his, you know, dominion over the over the universe of language and words, it was, it was challenging to, to speak to him, you know, for a young person. Yeah. I, I would imagine so. Yeah. Now, one of the things I think that makes Boris such an important writer is that he was very, very interested in reading. 
and in the reading experience and Absolutely. literary pleasure when you read his stuff you enjoyed his writing That's didn't right. you That's and that right. was important to him Totally important. He was a pleasure-seeking reader, mm-hmm. and that's one of the points I make in my. Uh, the, the, we've mentioned the two, the books of poems, the po- sonnets, but the next three volumes. One of them is on writing, which is the one I edited. Uh, the other is on Argentina, and the other is on mysticism. And on writing, I do make a great point of of how he, uh, for him, the art of reading was the most important art, and. But more than an art, a huge pleasure for him. That was true pleasure, and 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 uh, he sought to create that pleasure as a writer as well. And uh, so, basically, in 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 my volume, I really try to show that connection between reading and writing. I mean, and, and as Amir himself had said, that in in some ways, Borges invented the whole poetics of the reader as writer, and that is truly what you could say about Borges. Well, it, it's interesting because reading is very much a, a collaborative experience. Yes. A- and Borges was, was very interested in mirrors, and, and I would presume that he saw every person who sat down to read his, his work as another mirror image of himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he was always saying that, you know, readers are telling me they got this out of the book. I didn't see it, but... No, might might very well be true. <laughs> because he basically said, well, once the text is written, it really belongs to you, the reader. And that's what he says in Borges and I. Now, um, talk about um, his his work as, as a poet. And we see this, this development in uh, the poems of the night. And, and, how, and also how much, uh, how prolific an essayist he was. Again, for all the... Um, we know of him from his Fisionis and, and, and the Aleph. Uh, the bulk of his work was poetry and probably even more so uh, criticism and essays and, and especially writing about writing, which is what do you write about? Yes, so it, we've got three levels of mirrors here. Uh, we do, we <laughs> do. Well, he, as I said, his whole career began as a poet. That was his desire and uh, uh, what he really wanted to be. I mean, and he uh, obviously, you know, in his works, he he speaks of all the poets he loved. Uh, you know, from uh, from the German poets like Novalis, or to you know the American uh, Whitman, uh, you know, British John Keats. Uh, I mean, in other words, he was you know obviously so heterogeneous in his uh, his far-reaching tastes, but definitely he was inspired by 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 the world of poetry, by certainly Dante and Homer and and, and everything. Uh, uh, so, and, and indeed, he would. He actually, in terms of his taste, he tended toward more to the epic idea of poetry. As a matter of fact, he. Uh, really. Whereas, yes. Whereas, whereas, uh, Boy Casares's collaborator was more of a, a uh, loved more the more lyrical love poetry. But Borges was drawn, and that's why Borges loves these stories about gangsters and generals and these military past of his of his forefathers because it produces great epic narratives and poems, you know, and so a lot of his poems are these dedications to these, to these, uh, you know, heroic, quote-unquote, figures, uh, and, and, but also to great warriors of the past, uh, you know, and of course then his love for this Icelandic sagas and for, uh, you know, all sorts of mythologies, you know, so uh, he's, he's quite, um, so yeah, the epic is definitely one of his loves, and, and, and I think that's interesting because it also makes, it's what finally makes him a fiction writer, mm-hmm. because in a sense, he, well, he's interested in storytelling, but it's so. What's so interesting about him is, is that he, he 
for all his writing, he never wrote a novel, and, and right. or even anything that you could consider lengthwise and, and right. epic. Right. So talk about that choice of his, and that's a deliberate choice. Is that a, was that a deliberate choice, Very, or do you think that was something that he just wasn't able to accomplish? I think it was deliberate. I think also he felt. Uh, I, I, I truly believe that his blindness or his fear of the oncoming blindness, which finally took over completely in his 50s, may have been a, an aspect to all of this, but I do believe that he definitely had an, he, he, there was an aesthetic and poetic choice uh, that he made. Uh, in, the, in other words, in some ways that would be, began with ultraismo and with his, especially his love mm -hmm. for German expressionism, the idea that you really can sort of uh, condense into very few words, everything that you have to say, yep. you know. And, and novels, most novels are much too long, have many too details, and that he really believed that you, to get to the essence, which of course, that's why he was so strong on, on the detective story, because he liked the essential plot of the detective story. He liked the elegance of, 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 uh, of, of, the, of, of this kind of encapsulation, you know, that the detective plot is truly it's very rigorous, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. most detective novels are quite short, right? And uh, and um, I mean the good ones that he loved, uh, and so um, basically this idea of of, of I think um, that you can write any you know a five hundred page novel can be totally reduced to its essence in a in a book review mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> or in, in 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 a blueprint uh text that is like three or four pages long and so again why i i wanted to do this uh, very challenging volume uh, of the three uh, essay volumes on writing is because i did want readers to understand where these ideas are coming from mm -hmm. how he developed his very unique ideas about fiction writing and how it really begins in his work as a poet uh, and in his early uh, fascinations with uh, expressionism and other, uh, you know, certainly other elements of the avant-garde, uh, but how it, you know, how it really evolves. And so, um, uh, of course, it's a, uh, uh, so that's what that book really is doing, and I think it's going to be enormously useful for uh, readers, and, and it certainly discusses the, the importance, the significance of the detective uh, genre in his work, but, uh, but that is one of you know, seven topics that are dealt with here. Um, you know, one of the things that, that strikes me is when you read some of these pieces, like uh, the Ultraismo, they almost read, these are things that he later rejected and suppressed because right. they, were, they were versions of himself that he no longer yes. adhered to. But when you read them, they read almost like something that he himself would have written about an imaginary author who was not him. Uh-huh, <laughs> and, and exactly. It's, it's fascinating to, to see these different uh, visions of himself. Yes, well, and of course, his, his fiction writing begins by, to by writing about imaginary authors. I mean, his very first fiction, in a way, is, is, it, is a story which friends mistook for a book review. It was mm -hmm. called The Approach to al Mutasim. And since everything he said referred to actual publishers, writers, <laughs> uh, everybody thought that there was a book that had been, that he was reviewing called The Approach to Al-Mutasim, and they sought the book out. And they then discovered that it was the whole thing was a fiction invented by Borges. Then, of course, three years later, he writes Pierre Maynard, which is not only a book review, it's a, a whole bibliography of an invented writer. <laughs> and, and that's a fascinating uh, uh, 
piece of writing, it, w one of the things I think uh, Stephen said was that uh, Pierre Menard would have been the ideal translator for Borges. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I mean, Pierre Menard is Borges, uh, uh, but but Pierre Menard is also is also the reader, writer, translator who takes much too literally uh, this concept of the original. Mm -hmm. And that's what he's trying to always also question. And then that, that's, of course, a very modernist aspect of him, this questioning of the sacredness of, of, of the original, uh, and the sacredness of authorship. Uh, and uh, I mean, in some ways, Borges follows in the path of Joyce, who said, well, I can rewrite Homer and make him very original in my novel called Ulysses. Mm -hmm. And it is. It's, it's a, it's, uh, the whole novel refers in so many levels uh, to Ulysses, and yet it's sort of a, um, a totally new work. And this idea of making the old new is very much this Poundian, this modernist uh, aesthetic is that very much, and of course T.S. Eliot, all those guys, had a, a huge impact on Borges. Talk about how Borges uh, found these people, Joyce, uh, Ezra Pound, and, and the influence they had and how much he accepted and maybe how much he rejected of them. Well, you know, Borges, the, the, see, being Argentine, living in a marginal culture, which nonetheless was, was cosmopolitan and had this, uh, uh, you know, obviously uh, admiring relationship to the culture of Western Europe, to the... To the culture of North America to a certain extent, uh, or to all of culture, um, uh, gave, gave these Argentines and, or Peruvians or Mexicans or Cubans a great deal of freedom. They could take all of Europe and all of North America and all of the rest of the world's culture and turn it into their own thing. <laughs> take what they liked and reject what they didn't like. And so that marginality was a kind of advantage, you know? Mm -hmm. Nobody was watching, this, watching contro controlling their, what they were saying about it, and they were coming up with, with new interpretations. So they were at the height of their own culture, so they were free to invent their own culture. Absolutely, and, and, and that's what Borges says in, in his last great essay about Argentina, which is called The Argentine Writer and Tradition, which is the last essay in, in Alfred's wonderful little volume on Argentina. Uh, basically, he basically says, you know, uh, to be Argentine is to be, is to be universal. Uh, everything I read, everything I write, I read and write, alas, or 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 for good, or for some, for a good purpose, as an Argentine. So whether or not it's it's an Argentine subject, it becomes Argentine when I talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> Now, now, one of the things you say, I think that's very interesting. You, you talk about his interest in, you know, the cosmologies of philosophy and religion and mm -hmm. how he was interested in science fiction and detective fiction. Mm -hmm. um, and you say that he combined them into what he, uh, a new narrative mode that came to be known as fantastic literature, mm -hmm. but you call it a, a super realism. Explain that. Well, uh, I, I don't know if I call if I called it super realism. Uh, maybe I did, but uh, what what I was referring to was the fact that certainly Borges uh, uh, and and the writers of his generation, who were uh, and the poets particularly, were very influenced by all that was occurring in in the avant garde. You know, I mean, the surreal, surrealism and all the other, as I said, isms were were 
they were all part of that. Uh, and so I say superrealism because in some ways what the surrealists were seeking was a, a more real reality, a reality that wasn't so controlled and artificial, so rational, but they, they were seeking the unconscious. They were seeking, um, you know, the irrational side that was truly the real the realest part of reality. They wanted to see what William Burroughs called the naked lunch. The naked lunch, exactly. They were heading toward the naked lunch. And of course, they were very inspired by um, so-called underdeveloped or third world, uh, you know, uh, societies or, or continents. I mean, Afri see how African art influenced Picasso, uh, Asia, uh, you know, uh, all these, all these non-Western um, civilizations had much to teach the West and of course Nietzsche was a very important philosopher in this regard I mean in some ways he was the last of the Western philosophers the end of Western philosophy the end of rationalism but the, uh, the beginning of uh, you know a certain uh, awareness which of course Freud helped us with naturally of, of the great power of the unconscious and and how and but before these guys, there was people like Poe, and that's why the Surrealists loved Poe, because he had, a, even though he wrote these super rational detective stories, he wrote these horror stories. So Poe also was uh, like a sort of a pre, a pre, uh, you know, Freudian modernist in a way. I mean, he was really, he really had, had you know, his, 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 his finger on the pulse of what was going to come. And he was misunderstood in his time, but the Poe had a great deal of influence, both as a short story writer, but also in this sense of, uh, of, of, the, of the world, of the, of the explosion of the irrational. And so basically, I think the super real is about the encounter between reason and the irrational. You know, you were talking earlier about how he created cyberspace. And I, you know, I think I really would have to agree. And this has to do with this kind of super realism because in stories like Pierre Menard and uh, Talon Akbar. Orbis Tertius. Orbis Tertius. Um, he created um, stories that looked to be um, fiction of mimetic reality, mm -hmm. but were, in set, were also simultaneously and as entirely fantastic as something like A. Van Vogt writing cheesy science fiction. Mm -hmm. He created imaginary worlds that were mimetic and duplicates of our own, and that's really where cyberspace came from. Right, yeah. or the Aleph, which is a point in the universe which contains all the others. Well, is that not the World Wide Web? <laughs> Doesn't the web contain everything? I, I think so. In a little uh, tiny, tiny, uh, what do they call them? Soundbite? Yes. A, <laughs> a un, URL, Universal Resource Locator. It sounds like something that, uh, yeah. uh, the title of a, Bor a Borges story, doesn't it? The Aleph <laughs> is totally pre-web. Pre <laughs> now, oh, one of the things that, that I didn't realize about Borges and, but it, was that he was a compulsive re rewriter, and he would confuse the chronology by, by rewriting stuff, in, in, earlier stuff, and, and shoving it in with other stuff. Well, there was constant, re, you know, obviously he was constantly, like all writers, reusing his material, rewriting, re, re, reconfiguring, uh, and his later stories in some ways are a refinement of a lot of the ideas of the early sto earlier stories, but written in a, in a more direct style. So, uh, you know, so definitely that's that, you know, he, he, that's why translation is such an important part of his aesthetics because he really questions the whole idea of the definitive text. And this, of course, is yet another contradiction of Borges. When you read 
his stories, you say, I mean, it couldn't be more rigorously constructed. Every word is there for a reason. And yet, this is one, this is one approach to the theme. He'll do it again with an equally rigorous text, but it'll be, in some ways, a replay. So you see, uh, uh, you know, he's, he's very, he's always very, you know, paradoxical, but, but definitely writing as rewriting is very much uh, part of his, his, his whole process. One of the things, too, that must be interesting for you as a translator is his, is his interest in translation, and he has oh, a, a, a essay about this called After Images. Talk about that. Beautiful. Well, that, uh, that, uh, that essay, actually, After Images, which I don't have in front of me, is a very complex one, but it's, um, it's, uh, it's uh, definitely speaks to uh, what the, uh, the whole uh, ultraist project, which mm -hmm. was really to, I mean, Borges' idea, uh, principal idea, which is, of course, also that of most linguists, I think, is that language really began as a metaphor. Mm -hmm. And when you think of it, when you think of the ordinary words we use, like sunset, mm -hmm. it's not, that's not literal. The sun doesn't set. No. We go around the sun, mm -hmm. but we call it sunset. So basically, ordinary language is already metaphor. And so why he was so fascinated at the end of his life with, uh, with the Icelandic sagas is because he saw it there, he saw a language which was showed the origins of language as metaphor, you know, as, metaf as metaphoric images. And so therefore, what he wanted to go was back to these pure images and bring them, bring them into language. He wanted to, he wanted to purify the, the, the very overweighted Spanish language which is tended toward such floweriness and such excess. He wanted to, he wanted to bring it back to a greater strength and purity. Uh, of a previous time, but but being totally then, of course, modern and even a language speaking to the future. Talk about um, translating his work because that his his use of Spanish, um, which I understand, is so precise yet yet so. Uh, I guess he's a master of ambiguity. So translating ambiguity has got to be I. At best, ambiguous. Absolutely. <laughs> you need an ambiguous person like me to do it. <laughs> um, well, certainly uh, having a very uh, intimate and uh, very close knowledge of Argentine Spanish is very important. And, of course, I have translated. I mean, my, I have been drawn from the very beginning to two cultures, actually, more than any other of Latin America. One is Argentina, and the other is Cuba. In some ways, exact opposites. But to me, the writers from those countries were the most fascinating, and the writing was the most brilliant and rich and fruitful. Uh, for anybody who's interested in, in, in interesting writing, and so, um, and uh, and uh, so basically, uh, and, and it, it, the, the greatest challenge in, tra in translating Borges, even though of course poetry is always very difficult in terms of its formal, the you know the formal restrictions, and yet you know you have to, it has to be a text that sounds natural and close to, to the original text, and and. Stephen has done that beautifully well with the sonnets, um, is, is his prose, and particularly the early prose, the prose of the 20s and 30s, mm -hmm. and um, because it is very marked by Baroque, you know, devices, and, and of course the Baroque is very witty, it's very intellectual, 
it's very conceptual, uh, it's very, it plays with language, it's, uh, uh, so, uh, and English is a very, uh, even though it has Baroque origins, obviously Shakespeare uh, is, is an example of, of great, wonderful Baroqueness in many ways, but, but English went through a kind of a purge uh, in the 18th century that Spanish didn't, so, in some ways, you have to try to access, as I did in After Images, if you, I don't have the book in front of me, but that first sentence is a marvelously Baroque sentence that does work. It works, but you really have to, uh, it, it requires a great deal of um, reworking uh, and playing with, with, with sentence structure, playing with the relationships between words in order to find a way of capturing the style, but writing it in a style in which it, it's, it does fit in English, and that it works in English as it does work in his Spanish, even though he's pushing Spanish to its limits. And that's another thing. As a translator, you too have to try to push English to its limits, and yet make it alive, make sure that it's alive to the reader. So it's a great challenge. It's a great challenge. And, um, you know, he was influenced by many writers in the English tradition, like Oscar Wilde, for example. And so, in some ways, you don't have to—you have to try to bring a slight Oscar Wildean tone into it. <laughs> well, that and, would be the the art of verbal abuse. That's right. The art of verbal abuse has a lot of Oscar Wilde in it, and it is one of the most amusing essays Borges ever wrote. Uh, it has—it's it's inspired, I would say, mostly by Oscar Wilde and, of course, Dr. Johnson. Uh, two of his faves. So, uh, and you do have to, you know, you still have to be, as a translator, a bit of an actress, in my case, or an actor, in the case of Stephen, or, uh, you know, although I know everybody's an actor now, it's not, a, it's not a gendered thing, but the point of the matter is you have to perform, in a sense, uh, in the language that you believe the writer would be closest to mm -hmm, in your mm -hmm. own language. Yeah. So it's kind of that's like uh, it's an it's an interpretation. It's yes. it's like as you say, like a, a performance. A performance. That that that. Well, that's interesting. Now, one of the things that I liked about the Ultra Manifesto was the way he begins. Is he talks about that uh, you have a choice between prisms and mirrors, oh. and, and I really wow. like that distinction. It was wonderful. Yes, it was wonderful. Yes. Well, of course, prisms, of course, multiplies the images, right? Mm -hmm. In a sort of a cubist way, mm -hmm. which, of course, and the ultraism and cubism certainly had a lot in common in that sense. The idea, of, and that's what creates that sort of condensed, dense aspect of Borges' work, because like a Picasso painting that has the image seen juxtaposed uh, from so many you know, points of view, but the same, at the same image, so he is doing the same thing in language, you see. Well, uh, one of the things that, that I found prismatic. interesting. Prismatic. Prismatic. Yeah. yeah. I found really interesting about this is that when we think about literary criticism, mm -hmm. we generally think about long essays written by men, you know, older men in ivory towers, <laughs> not the, not the uh, almost uh, ranting, uh, rantings of a firebrand 20-year-old uh, uh, Borges running around Buenos Aires plastering things up on poles. So <laughs> I thought a lot, of, well, these, a lot of these things, you know, were like, I guess, broadsides. And, and so they're short and they're effective and they're I almost know. like a precursors to modern advertising. They are indeed. And, and it's interesting that you say that because uh, Borges and Bioy, uh, who were, who were Bioy was a younger man who was introduced to Borges uh, to, to sort of become a writer, and then they became great collaborators. And of course, Bioy became a wonderful uh, novelist on his own uh, and short story. But the, the first things they worked on together was an, was an advertisement 
for yogurt. Really? <laughs> because 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 Bioy's family owned a uh, dairy farm. <laughs> so they put these two useless guys to work, you know, you know, being practical ranch owners. Oh, listen, since you have nothing better to do than to talk about literature, while you're at it, could you do an ad on yogurt for us? <laughs> <laughs> this seems to be a habit of writers. When I talked to Salman <laughs> Rushdie, he told me that he had written some of the most, I think, the, the most famous uh, lines for uh, um, soap, ivory uh -huh. soap. So. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Yeah, yeah. Same, same idea. So anyway, what I was going to say is that, you know, so for your readers, so this, they know that after the two books of poems come the three, these three volumes, one of them is on Argentina, which is a very interesting one because Borges, one of the other misapprehensions of Borges, he's only a fiction writer. Another misapprehension is that he never talks about Argentina. He's more into universal metaphysical subjects. Not true. He was so engaged with Argentina, with the identity of Argentina, with the city, uh, with every aspect of its culture, popular or, or political or literary or whatever, but, you know, music, everything about the culture. And, um, you know, and in an early book of essays of his called precisely The Language of the Argentines, he identified the three major themes of his work. The first is language. The second is a mystery and a hope, eternity. The third is this taste for Buenos Aires. And in a sense, the three volumes we've done respect this idea. The first is on Argentina. The second on the mystical, you know, the discussions of eternity and whether paradoxical or not. And the third is on writing, you know, language. So, but he definitely was such an Argentine writer. Mm -hmm. I mean, so Argentine, uh, more than almost any other. We, we don't think of it. Was, how political was he? Very political. As a young man, extremely political. What happened is that when, with his blindness, increasing blindness, uh, he became more and more divorced from contemporary life and certainly contemporary newspapers. And so by the time he was in his mid to late 50s, he was no longer reading newspapers. Mm. That mm -hmm. makes it, you know, people would read things to him, but you know, it's not the same as having your own re relationship with it. So that's one problem. The other is as a young man, yes, he was sort of like an anarchist socialist. He was a pacifist. As you know, pacifism was a very important international movement after the horrors of World War I. And, and mm. he, was, he was alongside of all these other wonderful writers and philosophers like Bertram Russell and everybody who were, who were totally against war. So he was, you know, and he was very political in the sense that he was very engaged with Argentina becoming, coming into its own the creation of an identity for his own nation. So, uh, you know, he was a political person, but obviously he started to also uh, have, you know, there, there, were, there were divisions within the culture, and he was on one side of the battle, others on the other, and so sooner or later these battles became horrendous, and the results of, of, of what happened to Argentina is that, uh, for you know, a dictator took over, Perón, uh, and brought in a kind of uh, of of, uh, of government that was not dissimilar to uh, Nazism or fascism, and so obviously Borges was not in favor of that. Many people were, and at that point, I think is uh, when, of course, they he, actually he's dismissed from his post for his protests in the library for his protests against Perón. He's humiliated. His mother is put under house arrest. You know that all that happened in the fifties. Uh, late 40s, early 50s. And so after that period of time, I think <laughs> after that, Borges leaves politics behind. 
talk about his development of becoming a man of letters. That this is one of the one of the sections in your collection on writing. How did how did this happen? He was a bookworm from the get go. Get go. Well, he first of all, as he said, I grew up in my father's library. I don't think I ever left it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think this is true. His father had very unusual ideas. His father was a, a lawyer, but he was also kind of a philosopher, and uh, typically Argentine. His father didn't believe in the state. Argentines didn't believe in the state. They mm -hmm. thought that it was run by gangsters. So basically, he didn't believe in public education. Therefore, he educated his son at home. And how did he educate him? By having him read all of world literature at that point. Uh, Borges, for example, read through the entire 11th edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Well, which, that explains a lot. <laughs> do, I have to, do I have to say any more? Because many of those essays are written by great writers like Chesterton mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and, and hosts of others, right? Uh, all the major writers of the time, and certainly in the English language, were, write, were, were writing those essays and those articles in the Encyclopedia Britannica. So, I mean, so, of course, it also gave him a vast knowledge of the world, if a little bit secondhand. Obviously, he learned everything about Asia, about Africa, about you know, all of Europe, about uh, North America, about all of South America, but you know, certainly all of it was in books. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so he had sort of this bookish knowledge of the world. Uh, so that, that's what, you know, that, and then as a little boy, I mean, just, and also he grew up in, in an Anglo-Argentine home, which is not unusual. Uh, at that time, Argentina, 70% 70, 70 of the population of Buenos Aires were Europeans. Mm -hmm. They, they thought of themselves as the most European uh, of uh, nations in South America. They were almost like a colony of Europe. Hmm. Yeah. Now, now uh, one of the things that I thought found really interesting was that um, his uh, work, as you know, talking about critics, he he not only him he himself was a critic, but he fictionalized criticism yes. at the same time. Yes. So that's got to be. Uh, uh, kind of an interesting part where part, one part of his psyche and writing self melts into another. Yes, that's very interesting. And, and I think in some ways, you see, it, whether he was writing a poem or a review or a prologue or a story, he was really, in, sen in a sense, uh, uh, not limiting his subject matter. Mm -hmm. it, was, it, was the, it was the issues that interested him. Uh, I mean, you could look at, and I have, you know, I have a couple of prologues, and you say, my God, it's like a whole essay on Melville. Or you could look at one of these uh, capsule biographies on Virginia Woolf. My God, uh, the 600-page biography of Virginia Woolf doesn't give us as much as, as he gives us there. Mm -hmm. Because it's his thinking, you know, uh, about the subject. And certainly he fictionalizes the critic because he knows very well that the omniscient narrator is no longer alive. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you were talking about these kind of capsule biographies, too, this goes back to his, you know, interest in, in condensing things. And, yes. And I think this, is, in a sense, too, is a, is a form of translation, uh, translating the novel, translating the biography into something that somebody in the 20th century, that the 20th century attention span can understand. Absolutely, because really, he is, he's so 20th century in the, in the total fragmentary nature mm -hmm. of his work. It's fragmentary. I like that idea. I've, now, I that's, I've never heard yeah. it referred to that yes. way. Yes. But his entire body of work is essentially just a collection of fragments. Absolutely. And, and, and 
enormous numbers because he composed, at the very least, 3,000 pieces. Poems, stories, essays, reviews. Huge numbers, but <laughs> fragments. Could you talk about one of the things that's interested me was that he's the most critically written about writer just behind Shakespeare. And this must have caused him some great amusement. <laughs> exactly. He says, why do they bother reading me? They should read the books I'm reading. That's what matters. <laughs> <laughs> he thought people were absolutely absurd. And, of course, that's where his little kind of meditation that he wrote in 1960, Borges and I, comes out of, mm -hmm. where he says, you know, I read about myself in dictionaries of biography and, you know, this, and I say, and these, I hear about these games with infinity and all this, and I said, my God, it's like I'm an actor. It feels awful. People are making that, making him self-conscious of what he, you know, it, it, for him it was like an invasion, although, of course, he was naturally, he was certainly, you know, flattered and delighted that he had reached out to all these readers, which he had thought totally impossible in his early life, because He'd started writing in his 20s, and it wasn't until the 60s that such a large readership actually occurred. Uh, for, for 40 years, he was pretty much just known to a small group of people. And so, uh, but uh, at the same time, he said, you know, God, I mean, now this becomes like, uh, you know, these become games and uh, art, artifices that belong to the reader. They're, they're, you know, they, they don't fe even feel like they belong to me anymore. And what belongs to me are the books I read and the songs I hear, you know? And, and so I think that's very much, I mean, he, he really, you know, I mean, which, which, is, a, which is certainly, I'm sure, a an, an universal experience of most writers uh, who's, who then hear what the critics say and say, oh, well, let the critics talk. I mean, my God, you know. <laughs> it's, you know, somebody else's reading. It's not my reading. <laughs> you know, one thing that strikes me about Boris is that um, here's a man who's concerned with some of the most intellectually uh, dense ideas and perceptions of art and literature and life, yet his work is eminently readable. It's very, you know, it's almost populist. Yes, yeah, very accessible. Yes, as poems, for example, they're... They're just a delight, mm -hmm. you know. They're not. They're not. I mean, they're. They're just. There's just so. I mean, the emotions in them and the uh, come through so beautifully. I mean, they're. They're truly a delight. Yeah. No, I agree with you. I mean, he's totally fun to mm -hmm. read. Um, and. Uh, um, this gets back to the idea of reading as pleasure. Absolutely, and and he has one of the essays in the book is is uh, is literary pleasure, you know. What what gave him the greatest pleasure to read? Oh, that would be hard to define. <laughs> You're going to have to read my book on writing. <laughs> Maybe that's where we should end. <laughs> I've been speaking with Jill Levine. She's the editor uh, overseeing the new series of Penguin Classics uh, releases of Jorge Luis Borges. And these include the sonnets, poems of the night, and three collections of essays. There is on Argentina, on mysticism, and on writing. Thank you for joining me, Jill. My pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.